Thank you for joining us for this Prima podcast. My name is Taekwon Gilbert. I am the education coordinator at Prima and the moderator for today's podcast. October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. National Cybersecurity Awareness Month was designed to increase awareness regarding the significance of cybersecurity, as well as provide the necessary resources to ensure people are safe and secure online. To commemorate the 16th anniversary of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, Prima created a National Cybersecurity Awareness Month podcast series. Each week during the month of October, Prima will feature podcasts that share important information about cybersecurity. Today's podcast speaker, William Corcoran, will discuss how to safely obtain and store public data and information. He is the Privacy Analyst for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the United States Department of Homeland Security. Please enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Bill. Thank you, Taekwon. Thanks for having me today. So who oversees privacy at the Department of Homeland Security? So the department has an office of privacy, which is led by the chief privacy officer. The office was the first statutorily required privacy office for for a federal agency. And then within the department, each operational agency at DHS, so your Secret Service, CBP, Coast Guard, others like that, including my office, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and then a number of other headquarters subcomponents also have privacy officers or privacy points of contact and staff dedicated to sort of implementing privacy at the lower organizational level. What type of work does CISA do? So we are a a new operational agency within the department. We were originally a headquarters component that uh, had a different name, the National Protection and Programs Directorate. Our responsibilities now are kind of at the highest level are to protect the nation's critical infrastructure from physical and cyber threats. Critical infrastructure are those systems and assets that are vital to kind of the American way of life. And should something happen to them, basically the way of life, economy, and those types of things would have negative impact. So to protect our critical infrastructure, we do a number of things. So we offer cyber situational awareness, cybersecurity tools, incident response to both the government and the private sector upon request, along with assessments and cyber defense capabilities. And those are, those are sometimes offered to, obviously, federal, state, local, tribal, territorial governments, private sector, and then on occasion, international partners as well. For On the physical side, we coordinate security and resilience for the for our critical infrastructure through kind of strong partnerships with the government and private sector. And that includes those individuals that own and operate critical infrastructure. Another interesting and often overlooked part of our work is that we work to enhance public safety interoperable communications for all levels of government. And then we help partners across the country develop their emergency communications capabilities. And then finally, one of the newest things that we've been tasked with is kind of we manage risks for the nation. So we essentially work to identify and address the most significant risks to our nation's critical infrastructure. What type of information does CISA collect from the public? Based on our mission, 
We have a relatively broad mission set that requires us to collect a broad array of information from the public based on on that mission that I just described. So we collect contact information from our partners and organizations across the country, including those who are requesting technical assistance and training from us. We collect feedback on services we offer to our partners and the public. We collect information necessary to provide security clearances in certain circumstances to state local government personnel and private sector security officials who have responsibility for protecting critical infrastructure that allows us to better share information with them. We also receive a lot of cybersecurity information, indicators of malicious activity or, or, or compromise through a number of our cyber information sharing programs, and then also a number of, of sensors we have set up on federal department and agency platforms. And finally, we collect and maintain certain records related to human resources for CISA employees. And basically, we need to take steps to appropriately maintain and protect those as well. So we basically collect anything from a person checking yes in a box, asking if a person is satisfied with a CISA website, all the way up to collecting an individual's social security number. Can you explain what personally identifiable information and sensitive personally identifiable information is? Sure. So the the department defines personally identifiable information or PII as any information that permits the identity of an individual to be inferred. Pretty straightforward examples of that include individual's name, your email address, your phone number, your home address, and then a distinct subset of PII is sensitive, personally identifiable information. And that's a type of PII that if it was lost or compromised or disclosed without authorization could result in substantial harm, embarrassment, or inconvenience or unfairness to that individual. And your standard examples for this include one social security number, passport number, financial account information. And logically, because of the the risks involved with this information, basically the risk of harm or compromise, we and most other organizations have a much stricter handling requirement on sensitive PII than uh, typically basic, basic PII. What does your office do to ensure PII that CISA collects is protected? CISA, like the rest of the department, we rely on a, a concept called the, the Fair Information Practice Principles, or, or, or the FIPS, and they essentially govern our privacy compliance policies and procedures around the use of PII. And by properly following these policies and procedures, we're able to better ensure that PII is protected. The FIPS apply to kind of every part of the information lifecycle from collection to storage to the use of the information to dissemination and then to even the destruction of it. They help us safeguard against the risk of loss, unauthorized access, disclosure, unauthorized disclosure, and destruction of PII. Some of them include we want to be transparent with how we plan to use PII. So to do that, we provide privacy notices on forms at the time of collection, kind of informing people of how we intend to use the information, what authorities we're collecting it under. And then we also offer transparency by publishing 
specific system and program privacy impact assessments on our website. We also seek to get the PII directly from the individual, which is essentially a way of seeking consent for the collection of information. Almost always the information we request is voluntary. So there's never really a requirement to, to collect it from uh, other sources. So we, we think that's an important, important attribute. We also want to make sure that we spe- specifically articulate the purposes for which the PII is to be used so that we can be held accountable to what our actual use ends up being. And then we only want to collect PII that's relevant and necessary for that purpose that we specified and only keep the PII for as long as we need to fulfill the purpose. And then basically we want to limit the use of the PII to the purpose we specified. We want to make sure that that information we collect, that PII we collect, is as accurate and complete as necessary to ensure that basically if if there were to be a benefit conferred or anything along those lines, it could be done properly and there wouldn't be any gaps or delays in processing because of improperly collected information on our part. And then we want to make sure that we protect PII in essentially all all media using basic IT data security concepts like technical controls on data and role-based access to that data as well. And then finally, we want to just make sure, as I mentioned before, we're accountable for the data we collect. We want to make sure that all employees and contractors who have who use the PII have been properly trained. And then we want to essentially audit our use of the PII to ensure that we're complying with the FIPS and are appropriately using that information. What does CISA do in the event that there is a PII breach? So CISA, just like the rest of the department, we follow a specific set of guidelines that are set forth by the DHS Office of Privacy. We call them the Privacy Incident Handling Guidelines. And basically those require us to follow a series of action and activities to accurately identify, report, investigate, respond to, and mitigate privacy incidents. So because the incidents can all be different, the specific responses tend to be different, but we want to make sure that the processes we use are consistent with the guideline principles that that we're required to follow. And essentially, we, we, uh, this also includes adhering to victim and congressional notification requirements, depending on how large an incident is. And then also just making sure that we appropriately work with our partners in IT security or physical security, depending on what the incident is, to take appropriate action. Our office, just like the other offices within the department, we train CISA employees to immediately report any suspected privacy incident so that we can better take or more quickly take um, action to mitigate the, uh, the issue as quickly as possible. How does CISA ensure that organizations doing work on its behalf take the appropriate steps to protect PII? We're not unique in doing this or in our methods for doing this. The most effective way of ensuring that a third party that's processing data on your behalf is to make sure that all of your data security and privacy requirements are built into any contracts you have with these entities. So this will make sure that contractors 
know that they're responsible for ensuring their their staff are appropriately trained on the handling of PII. It'll also help make sure that they know what their responsibilities and liabilities are in the event of any sort of PII breach or, or incident. So typically, our office reviews or works to ensure that appropriate language is included in the contracts and statements of work that that we have with these contracting organizations so that we can make sure that should something happen, should, God forbid, something, should a contractor accidentally mishandle the information, they'll understand what they're responsible for and the contract will, will be clear and we'll be able to handle it thusly. Are there any emerging privacy issues with which CISA is dealing? I'd say at a broad government level, we're seeing more of kind of the question of are there additional privacy considerations as information gets moved to the cloud? And so far, what we've seen is that for the purposes of the transition, a lot of it is, and again, I'm going to preface this by saying so far is mostly an IT security issue. Most of the privacy requirements stay the same, but that doesn't mean that that won't change. So that's something that is certainly on our radar as information is moved from physical locations into into the cloud. And then once it actually sits and exists there, that, that's something we'll continue to consider because I don't, I don't think anyone has fully grasped what that space encompasses and, and how what privacy impacts there may be. The other one that is kind of a, a broad change that we're seeing, and it's not necessarily an issue, is that more systems are being created utilizing privacy by design approach. This is essentially where privacy is being taken into account throughout the the entire engineering process, which we appreciate because it allows for our office to get involved early on, essentially at the, at the beginning of the, the development process. And then we can help those programs see where those privacy equities lie at every step in the process. And so well, that's not necessarily an, an emergency privacy issue. It's an it's emerging concept that's affecting privacy and we think it's in a good way. So we hope to, to see more of that. Thank you for tuning into Prima's National Cybersecurity Awareness Month podcast series. Should you have any questions regarding this podcast or any podcast in this series, please email education at primacentral.org. To learn more about Prima's educational resources, please visit primacentral.org. Thanks again.